Now, if you were here last week, Dave Ellis, who's one of our small group leaders, he was speaking to us about identity. And um, at the end, he kind of shared with us a picture, and he described us like birds in a cage, and that God was inviting us to step out into our true identity, that we're not birds to live in a cage, we're more like eagles, that we're to soar um, like eagles. And you know, we really are um, so much more than we think we are. We're made in God's image. We are his children. And when we understand who we are, we understand the power that we carry, the power that our words carry, and the power that our prayers carry. And today I want to talk about prayer. I want to start with a story about a man called Dave Reaver. Now, um, my father sent me, I think it was a tape or a CD some years ago, and um, it was a, this guy's testimony, and it was the most exciting and thrilling testimony. I was so inspired. And basically, um, Dave Reaver was sent out to Vietnam, drafted to Vietnam at a young age, and uh, in his training, he becomes friends with um, three guys who are um, quite vulgar. They tease him about his faith, and he nicknames them pervert number one, pervert number two, and pervert number three. And um, anyway, but the real kind of drama of the story um, happens when he is in a boat, and uh, bullets are being fired, you know, hundreds of rounds per minute, or, I, you know, I don't know the exact details, but, uh, he, you know, they're being showered with bullets, and he picks up a hand grenade, a phosphorus hand grenade, he pulls out the pin, and he's about to lobby it out when one of the bullets hits the hand grenade, and it explodes right next to him. He's on fire, and instinctively he jumps into the water, but being phosphorus, it doesn't go out. When they finally find his body, um, they really think he's dead. Um, they pick this body up, they put it on the stretcher. It's so hot that he actually burns through the stretcher and falls to the ground again. Well, amazingly, um, the surgeons, doctors um, uh, bring him back kind of together. He recovers and he goes on to share this incredible story of God's goodness. He is blind as a result of this. He's lost his ear, he's disfigured, and, um, but his testimony is hilarious. It's just inspiring, it's full of thanksgiving. And uh, many, many people came to faith through his story, including pervert number one, pervert number two, and pervert number three. And at one point, one of them, I can't remember, it's number two or number three, they come running from the back of the auditorium to the front, falling on their knees, just saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And it's such a thrilling story. And I love these kinds of stories because they illustrate, you know, um, people rising from the ashes, you know, uh, people experiencing desolation and desperation, and yet coming to that place where they just lift their wings and soar, and um, it gives us such hope. Folks, we're living in desperate times. We're living in a world that desperately needs hope. And more than ever, we have a global awareness. We have an awareness of suffering, of wars, of famines, of natural disasters, um, terrible injustice, and now in our nation, there's an increase, an instability. Earlier this year, we saw terrorist attacks. In March, Westminster, terrorist attack killing six people, 40 injured. In May, we saw on May the 22nd in the Manchester Arena, um, 22 were killed and 119 injured. Some of them children, and um, it was just devastating, absolutely devastating. Then in June, another attack, London Bridge, eight killed, 48 injured. 
And then later on in June, uh, people taking the law into their own hands, a vigilante attack, taking revenge on, on the Muslim community at Finsbury Park Mosque. And in all these horrors, in all these desperate things, we see lives broken and destroyed, and we see terrible loss and grief. We had been on a lovely family holiday, uh, and um, it was June, mid-June, and we came back on June the 13th, and then on the Wednesday, we turned on the TV, and what we saw was the Grenfell Tower block in Kensington burning, flames uh, just flicking up, 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 roaring up um, the tower block. And we witnessed that horror unfold all day on the screens. Every time we came in and the telly was on, it was all going on again and again. And the reports ran all day. People just in despair didn't know whether their loved ones or their friends had escaped the building. And to this day, there are many missing, unaccounted for. We don't know how many are actually dead because many have just sort of disappeared. And and while the horror and the devastation and the news kept breaking, and you know, we saw people reacting with shock and anger and confusion and then later blame, um, one person described the emergency services. In the midst of all this, um, there were these incredible human responses. And they described the emergency service, men and women ran towards danger. They risked their own lives to save people from that same danger. And it's so inspiring, isn't it, to see communities rise up, work together for good, compassionate responses, courage in danger. On the one hand, we see horrendous evil, demonic activity going on, fire blazing. And on the other, people responding. They don't realize that they're responding in that way because they're made in the image of God. They don't realize that it's God that's put in that compassionate response. And you know, it's such a picture of our own calling, called to run into suffering, to run towards danger, to run into crisis, to not run away from it, but to run towards it, to actually save people from the danger. So we have an opportunity to respond. But you know, uh, when we get the big picture, you know, when we actually saw like eagles and we see the strategic view of what's gone, going on in our world and over our nation, even over our city, we can feel like we're out of our depth. And so on the one hand, I have this terrible unease, this kind of anxiety about what is happening to our culture, what's happening to the world around us. But on the other hand, I feel so much more hopeful than ever. I feel excited because I know that God is good and I know that he intends to rescue. And we have a part to play. But folks, we can't respond in our own strength. You know, we are a church that is action-oriented. You know, we take risks and we move out in faith and we do things. We get involved, we, we get messy, and we want to reach out. But some of the things are beyond our capability, beyond even our wisdom, our minds, and we need supernatural power. We need God. And so that's why I want to talk today about prayer. Now, 10 days before Pentecost, and Pentecost is when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit on the disciples, and uh, 10 days before that, in May, we um, kind of set aside that time to enable people to come to pray during those 10 days. And there was a room set aside, and it was used in various ways. There was a family prayer event. There were different uh, kind of visual things laid out and, and prayer walks and things for people to just uh, come together before God. And we were responding. In fact, we had been doing it before this, but 
A couple of years ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, he called the nation, he called the Anglican Communion, that's the Church of England, to prayer all across the world. He called them to prayer. And when we heard about it, we thought, well, we can join in because we're already setting that time aside and we want to join in with this as a vineyard and we want to participate in what God is doing in the area of prayer. And then at the end of the week, um, Steve Sylvester, who leads um, St. Nick's in the city centre, Church of England Church, he asked if he could use this venue, if they could bring together churches from all over Nottingham, leaders, anybody who wanted to be here, to pray together. And uh, the prayer that we're praying that Justin Welby initiated is, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's the Lord's Prayer, but those particular lines within the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then to end it with, come Holy Spirit an invitation for the Spirit to move again. Anyway, we had this event, and it was amazing. There were people from all different um, churches and denominations. So I'm sitting there next to the Catholic bishop and his assistant. There were uh, the black majority churches represented by numerous bishops. There were Pentecostals, Baptists, just all kinds of denominations represented, and it was such an amazing occasion. There was like, um, there was a gospel choir. Dave and the band were leading worship as well. Um, there was an outbreak of spontaneous dancing at the end, people running across the floor here. There, were, there was anointing with oil. People were falling down in the spirit. Um, there was like liturgy, which is more formal prayers, and then there were more spontaneous opportunities to pray. And it was just wonderful. You know, if we had tried to sit in a room having a theological discussion, a discussion about our different biblical views, we wouldn't have been able to arrive at unity. But centered around Jesus, inviting each other to call upon God for his kingdom to come, uh, for, for his glory to fall, for the Holy Spirit to fall in this place. You know, we could be united around the King, united around Jesus. Now, one of the things that was a highlight for me was when Bishop Paul Williams, he's the Bishop of Southwell, and he got up and he talked about something that had happened in Nottingham. That basically, um, in the weeks coming up to this 10 days, and then, particularly during the 10 days, there had been reports and calls into the radio station, into um, the police stations, people asking what was the noise that they heard over Nottingham. Now, I just want you to hear this noise that, were, that was reported on the BBC. Someone recorded it, and we're just going to play it now. reminding us of that sound of wind uh, when the early disciples waited on the Holy Spirit. And you know, I just felt this kind of wow, because when one of the people who called into the police station, she said, I'm hearing this sound, what is it? The policeman said, we, we can hear it ourselves, but no one knows what it is. And there was no explanation for this sound. And just something in me just kind of stirred. I thought, well, goodness, maybe it's a sign. I have no idea. Maybe there will one day be an explanation. But at the time, it was, it was just a sign of the Spirit. And you know, the Lord invites us to pray. He invites us to call on the Spirit. And I want to read from 2 Chronicles. I want to read um, this scripture 
In um, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. It's an amazing scripture. It's an amazing invitation. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Folks, we're out of our depth. It's time to call upon the Lord. We're invited by the Lord. We're commanded to pray. Now, I remember reading a book by a guy called Tommy Tenney. He wrote the book, The God Chasers. And he tells of an occasion in which a pastor is kind of reading this passage to the people in his church. And as he finishes it, it's like a bolt of lightning hits the, um, the pulpit. And it falls forward and splits in two, and he is catapulted backwards. And of course, the, the weight of the presence of God falls on the congregation, and they began to call out to God and, and repent, and it's an incredible event. And it always stuck in my mind and has reminded me of just how God is with us as we pray. God wants to come to us as we pray. He is here, and he wants to respond. And we don't need to give up. We don't need to give up because God really hears our prayers. Now, David Pitch is my father. He wrote um, in his book on prayer, he wrote, it was like, it's one of the, la it's the last book that he's written. I mean, he may write another couple of joke books, <laughs> but this is like probably the last serious book he's going to write. And you can't get it on Amazon because it's a limited um, edition. And um, anyway, in, in 2010, it was published first. And um, he says this, Meanwhile, the world will continue floundering from one successive government or crisis to another until desperate subjects cry out for God to establish his absolute dominion back here on earth. Come, Lord Jesus, he quotes from the book of Revelation. Meanwhile, the world will continue floundering from one successive government or crisis to another until desperate subjects cry out for God to establish his absolute dominion back here on earth come Lord Jesus and we join with that and we say yes come Lord Jesus let your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven we need to recognize that we're in need and so we humble ourselves and we pray to the one person who can change hearts save people save nations now you may be in a situation you where you personally feel discouraged where you personally feel desperate and I want you to know God answers prayer. He doesn't always answer them as we expect, but he is always listening and he always comes. And I want to share some stories, one on a kind of more personal, um, uh, you know, someone's personal experience in their family, another one more of a national one. But the first one comes from the book by Jim Simbala. And he wrote a book on prayer called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And it's a really inspiring book. You can get hold of that one. And he recounts the story of his daughter, Chrissy. Now, in her teens, um, his eldest daughter, Chrissy, she turns her back on her parents. She turns her back on the church, on God, and she gets into all sorts of mess. And uh, it's an incredibly heartbreaking story because for two years, they didn't hear from her. Now, on one of their regular meetings, um, the church is praying, and uh, a woman comes up to Jim, and she says, I really feel we need to pray for Chrissy, your daughter. And at first he feels a bit awkward. Why pray for his daughter when there's so many people with all kinds of prayer needs? 
But he believes the Holy Spirit is inviting them to do this, so he says to the group, you know, let's pray. Let's pray for Chrissy. Anyway, they began to call out to God, and it's as if Chrissy became an example of all the prodigals that God wants to gather back to himself. 32 hours later, his daughter is on his kitchen floor, sobbing, Daddy, Daddy, I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against myself. And she begins to talk about the drugs she's been into and the different things she's been involved with, things that a father would never want to hear. But then she says this, Daddy, who was praying for me on Tuesday night? That was the night of the prayer meeting. On that night, God had woken her up and he'd showed her that she was sliding down towards a bottomless pit. And God wrapped his arms around her and he kept her from sliding. She's now happily married, she has children, her husband pastors a church. It's an amazing answer to prayer. But I want to tell you another amazing story that happened in the 1940s. It was a time when we were at war with Germany, a grave crisis time for the British Empire. The nation was in the throes of the Second World War and Hitler's attack on continental Europe was advancing and the army's movements were posing greater threat to the British shores. In fact, the German high command went so far as to boast that the British army is encircled and that their troops were proceeding to its annihilation. His Majesty King George VI requested that Sunday, May 26th, should be observed as a national day of prayer. And in a stirring radio broadcast, he called the people of Britain and of the empire to commit their cause to God. Together with members of the cabinet, the king attended Westminster Abbey, whilst millions of his citizens in all parts of the Commonwealth and the empire flocked to churches to join in prayer. In fact, there were queues to get into Westminster Abbey that day. There's a picture up there. Now, some events happened that are quite extraordinary. The first one was, nobody quite knows why, but Hitler um, overruled his generals and halted the advance of the armies. There was also a fierce storm that blew across Flanders, grounding the German Luftwaffe, enabling the British army to advance on foot, um, kind of protected in a sense by this terrible storm because the aircrafts couldn't fly. Uh, it was too turbulent conditions. Now, after the storm, a great calm came upon the English Channel, one that's very rarely been experienced. It was so calm that it was like a milk pond, and it enabled a vast armada of little ships, big ships, warships, privately owned motor cruisers from British rivers and estuaries. In fact, almost anything that could float um, plied back and forth across the Channel to rescue many of the British army as possible. One man um, was found himself in this situation where 400 of the soldiers were being, um, uh, they, there was an aircraft kind of attack going on over them and um, there was a downpour of bullets and, and just showering of bullets everywhere. And, um, and then when he got up, there was not one casualty and he exclaimed, surely a divine power was at work. Now, after this extraordinary day, which people in the Christian world call the miracle of Dunkirk, um, there was a day of thanksgiving held on June the 9th in 1940, and an article in the Daily Telegraph stated, the prayers of the nation were answered. Now, 
you might go and see the movie, uh, Dunkirk. They don't represent this uh, God perspective, but what they do represent is the courage on British men uh, and women, uh, well, I think mostly men in those days, who went across in their vehicles and their boats across the British Channel, took courage and went oh, across to save the lives of many, many, many soldiers. Now, I sense a momentum for prayer that's growing. After May, um, that weekend of Pentecost, Pete Gregg, uh, some of you will know him for the movement of 24-7 prayer. It's a worldwide movement of, of involving hundreds and thousands, probably just, I, I can't even name the figure, of, of young people predominantly caught up in prayer. And he said this, he tweeted this, 36 cathedrals, 85 nations, thousands of churches, more than a million of us just united to pray, thy kingdom come. What on earth happens now? And I say the same. You know, it really is an incredible movement of prayer. What on earth is going to happen? If we keep praying, folks, we can believe for more. Repentance will come. Repentance will fall. Wicked hearts can change. We've seen prayer at work time and time again. We've seen it in the scriptures. We have countless stories here at Trent Vineyard. We've seen lives change through prayer. I was talking to Bob Fulton, who was the original leader. He and his wife, Penny, started the first small group that went, then went on to become a vineyard. Now, um, he was reminding us that there was a time in the US where churches all over were praying for revival. They were praying for a move of God. And uh, it was a time of the hippies. And amongst the hippies, there began a move which became known in the Christian world as the Jesus People Movement. And um, revival showed up at the doorstep of many churches. And it looked like, you know, um, kind of baggy, flared, frayed jeans, long hair, guitars over their shoulders, and kind of a bit smelling of, of uh, weed, you know. And, and these, they turned up at the door of the churches, and many churches didn't recognize what God was doing. But um, God was doing an amazing thing, and some did, and, and just this incredible new way of worshiping erupted, and all kinds of things happened. And one of the men who was converted during the Jesus People movement, well, Bob Dylan got converted during that movement, but another person that was less known was Ken Gullickson. Now, Ken Gullickson started four churches, and he called them Vineyard. And then he recognized that John Wimber had the anointing to take the vineyard forward, and he gave him his four vineyards. And the small group that Bob and Penny ran was the same small group that Wimber was leading. And so then he took on the vineyard, and the vineyard movement grew, and there are now more than 2,000 churches all over the world. And so, you know, God starts things through prayer. God answers prayer. We may not always recognize how he answers them. It may not be how we expect it, but God is listening to our prayers. So much can happen. God changes hearts. God intervenes. God rescues. Now, when I was a little girl, um, we lived in Chile in South America, and uh, at one time, uh, when I was around six or seven, um, we actually, I must have been younger, I must have been about five, and uh, we lived in a big old um, church hall. And uh, my father had built on one side of um, the hall, uh, made of kind of the kind of 
construction that this wall on the, on the end looks like out of some sort of plywood. He made a kind of a home for us as a family. On the other side of the hall, there was a bit of a stage, but then behind it, he built a flat for Auntie Margaret. Now, she wasn't a blood relative, um, but she was one of the missionary women out there, and so we would call her Auntie Margaret. And um, my sisters and I would go across, and if she wasn't there, we'd go and play in her flat. And um, we were quite mischievous. And, uh, but on, on one occasion, I remember we were playing under her desk, and uh, her desk was made of wood, and it had a bit like banisters, these bars that were holding the desk up. And it was very tempting to sort of put our heads through the banisters. And on this occasion, Tasha, my younger sister, puts her head through the banisters and gets stuck. And we, a panic ensues, and we're just calling out, Auntie Margaret! Auntie Margaret! Auntie Margaret! You know, anyway, thank the Lord, Auntie Margaret comes up the stairs, finding us there with Tasha's head stuck through this, the desk bars. And, you know, immediately we felt calm. Immediately we felt peace. Auntie Margaret was here. It was going to get sorted. And uh, initially what she did was she just began to instruct Tasha. Tasha, if you've got your head through the bars, you can get them out. She started to encourage her to pull her head through. But at the end of the day, we knew that Auntie Margaret was sorted out. We knew she would. Now, from an adult perspective, she would probably have taken a hacksaw and, and you know, cut through the wood, and we would have, Tasha would have been set free. But we just had absolute confidence. We didn't know how she would do it, but Auntie Margaret would rescue Tasha. And you know, that's a picture of, of God uh, responding to our cries. You know, God is with us. You can know his peace. When you cry out to him, you can know he's with you. You can rest. And it's an, he's inviting us to enter that sense of rest, not panic, but calm, because he will listen to us. He does answer us. And then he gives us instructions. He shows us how to do it. He doesn't tell us the whole story. He just gives us the next step. And we're to just walk in his instructions. He guides us out of trouble. But at the end of the day, he will rescue us. He has a plan. We may not understand it, but he will rescue. We can be assured of that. We've seen it, we've seen it in our own lives, but we see it in the scriptures. The psalmist teaches us to cry out for rescue. In Psalm 31 verse two, it says this, turn your ear to me, come quickly to my rescue, be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. We're encouraged to cry out to the Lord. The prophets promise and declare rescue. Jeremiah 1.8 says this, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Isaiah 46, verse 4, I am he who sustains you. I have made you. I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we see God coming to us through the person of Jesus. He comes to rescue us, and he continues to rescue us. He continues to respond to our personal prayers, to the prayers of this church, to the prayers of our city, of the nation, and of the world. Now, my particular cry, my cry of desperation is for, for a new empowering of the Holy Spirit, a new move. We don't know what it's going to look like, but we need God to move. I'm crying out for boldness. I'm crying out for courage. When the Holy Spirit fell on the first disciples, they experienced him, or they saw him like flames of fire on the heads of the disciples. Uh, they saw uh, people, they heard people speaking in tongues. The disciples were filled with the Spirit. They started speaking in different languages, and many people who heard it heard their own native language being spoken, and they were bewildered and amazed. They also heard the sound of a rushing wind, the whoosh that came, and, um, and many people testified to this happening. It caused amazement, bewilderment. Some people thought they were drunk. 
But the thing that struck me is what happened to Peter. Peter was a disciple who denied knowing Jesus when Jesus was being taken to the cross. He was so frightened of what was going to happen to him. He pretended he had no association with Jesus. But after the Holy Spirit fell on him, he gets up in front of over 3,000 people and he proclaims the gospel of Jesus. He tells them who Jesus was. He tells them that he is God, that he has come uh, to this earth to rescue us. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. He's been raised from the dead. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He proclaims the good news of Jesus, and, and thousands of them came to faith, and it says 3,000 were added to the church that day. Folks, we are called to live in that kind of courage and boldness.